Welcome to the Jay Martin Show. If you're new to the show, my name is Jay. I'm an investor. I'm here looking for the smartest home for my cash. If that sounds like you, then I think you're going to like what we do here. Now, my guest today is Frank Holmes, the CEO and CIO of U.S. Funds, an award-winning money manager, close friend, and veteran investor, very smart human being. Frank runs ETFs in the gold sector, so he's got his finger on the pulse of the precious metals and mining sector. He runs the cargo ETF, it's called the Sea to Sky ETF, which handles international logistics and shipping, so he's got his finger on the pulse of geopolitical conflicts and international trade. He also runs the Jets ETF, focused on the airline industry, and he is the executive chairman of Hive Digital. So he's all over the digital asset space. There's always so much that I want to pull out of Frank's brain when we sit down to chat. So <clears throat> today's interview, we covered a ton of ground, starting with the uh, hard asset space that led us into some of the global conflicts that are erupting around the world, including the most recent um, hostile events in the Red Sea, disrupting shipping through the Suez Canal and causing massive implications for the countries that rely on that trade route, mainly everybody. We talked about cultural divisions in the U.S. and and why they're largely misunderstood and what people are missing. You know, fascinating conversation, as always. I learned so much from Frank, and I really appreciate his time. You're going to love this. <clears throat> Before we jump in, one quick announcement. I am hosting my conference in Vancouver, British Columbia on January 21st and 22nd at the World Class Vancouver Convention Center. This is an absolute behemoth of a conference, over 80 keynote speakers, over 240 investment opportunities in the trade show floor. I have six stages around the perimeter of the conference and we'll probably see about five to 6,000 investors show up. It's tons of fun. If you want to join, go to cambridgehouse.com and all the details for tickets are there. But here is Frank Holmes. Enjoy. All right, here I am with Frank Holmes. Frank, it's been a while. It's been too long. I love having you on the show. There's a ton of ground that I want to cover today. So thanks for making the time. And uh, it's great to see you. It's great to see you, Jay. And you're looking so healthy and vibrant. Doing my best, man. I got, like I said, I got three kids that I need to uh, need to make sure I'm still competitive at sport when they're teenagers and they're far from teenagers today. So I got a lot of ground to cover. Well, that's great. <laughs> okay. So, um, you know, quite the collection of businesses that, that you run and, and therefore various industries that you cover from precious metals to crypto, to logistics and cargo, the jet CTF. And I know you look at a lot more than this. I want to start with your thoughts on the gold market and use that as a jump off point, because I think that'll lead us to maybe some of the macro and geopolitical considerations we'll end up talking about. So high level, Frank, 2024, thoughts on the gold market. What are you paying attention to? What's interesting, uh, last year this time, I was making comments in interviews that I thought the stock market would be up for 23, and it was so pervasively negative. And I was trying to articulate that there's more than 60 years of data, it goes back 100, of the presidential election cycle. And it really doesn't matter if it's Democrat or president. What matters is that when you have a Democratic president and Congress are Republicans, uh, there are there is statistically a very powerful force. And in the third year of a presidential election cycle, markets are up double digit. And the Magnificent Seven pulled it off this past year. But it was interesting to see that uh, as the global economy slowed down, 
uh, in the first six months and before things sort of found a bottom. It didn't matter. The market still charged and had a spectacular year. So then it says, well, what happens in the fourth year uh, that when you have a presidential election cycle and you have these dynamics of political power sharing, uh, but you have interest rates falling? You know, in the previous times, interest rates have been rising. And, and that does change the dynamic. So with interest rates falling in 2024, a Democratic president, a Republican Congress, uh, the odds favor the stock market as a whole will be up double digits. Uh, otherwise, it's usually up like 9%. You know, you made that call on my show. I remember that when you're walking through your, your presidential um, year thesis. So... You're making the call that interest rates will fall in 2024. Um, do you expect a dramatic pivot, Frank, or more of just a flattening? Uh, what, what, what's your take there? Well, the PMI numbers were a little disappointing uh, that came out uh, for last month of December. And we tracked the PMIs, Jay, because the Purchasing Manufacturers Indicator, or in the U.S. they call the ISM, is the manufacturers, and, and it's a wonderful leading indicator. The stock market is a leading indicator, especially what's forecast for next year's earnings. It's usually about six to nine months ahead of what the real economy is. And, and what you're seeing now is that the PMIs used to be above 50, and they fell down to 44. Um, uh, Europe was even worse. China keeps, I think, fudging their numbers, uh, but th th there's this contraction. And I thought that we had one month above three months, which is a very important indicator because it relates to commodity demand. So when the one month is above the three-month uh, average price for PMI, you usually see copper prices rising, oil prices rising, uh, iron ore prices rising. And in particular, when you have the U.S. and China with strong PMIs, the third comes in as Europe, fourth comes as Japan. And when all those four have PMIs above 50 and the last month is above the three months, commodities are ripping. And then you have to go look at the great commodity stocks and you look at the exploration companies. But it's a very different world we've been living since COVID because Asia's down and North America goes up and then all of a sudden Asia goes up and North America goes down and then Europe goes up. There's not been sort of the synchronization that they're all collectively in the same trend. And that creates sort of macro whipsaws. Uh, Europe bottomed in the summer. Uh, uh, China seemed to have also bottomed in the summer. Uh, America, I thought, had bottomed. It looks like it's rolled over. Uh, however, uh, came out today that jobs are are pretty strong and much more than that they thought the expectations so rates are rising so with that you're going to I think live a year of a lot of these whipsaws but odds favor bad news is good news bad news of PMI means rates will be falling mm -hmm. uh, short term a big build up in December numbers for employment numbers uh, they'll probably fall off going into to, to January's numbers which come out in February. Uh, rates will continue to fall. Uh, rates are now starting to go negative yields again. That's great for gold. That's great for any any tangible asset. Uh, what have we seen in, in the past, last the last quarter, in particular the last month of last year, Costco sells $100 million of gold. Uh, yeah. 
so what is that? That's predominantly an upper end, wealthier um, uh, baby boomer, my age, uh, baby boomer. Uh, Walmart is a different different spend. So you say the average spend at Costco is $200. The average spend at Walmart is $25. So they give you an idea. So you have retail people buying gold and now Walmart's rolling out with gold sales. Um, And we have negative real interest rates. And I think they're going to even go more negative. So I think it's a pretty, it's going to be a pretty good year uh, for overall for stocks. I think we're going to see uh, gold trade higher, but day in, day out. Oh, gold's off today. Well, why is it off? Because rates are up. Rates are up because employment numbers were different. They're just short-term noise. The trend, the big macro trend is your friend. Rates are going to be falling in 2024 politicians are going through the big election cycle. They're going to do everything to make, to get those, the job creation going strong. What really surprised people last year, and it was one of those interesting interviews I was listening to trying to figure out why is the economy still pretty robust in America? And it came out with the uh, Mitch McConnell interview. uh, And it was that comments were that they uh, basically America has given, sold, whatever to the Ukraine, old technology, old weapons, and they are rebuilding. And all this debt spending is rebuilding the military industrial complex. And that means that that the major military companies are in fact are in every state. And, and that is very important for high paying jobs right across the nation. And so everyone's so focused on housing numbers and this number and that number, missing that that the base layer is pretty good income and all the debt funding will come to hurt later on, which will be good for assets like gold. But in the short term, America is, is full throttle of rebuilding their military complex. And a lot of the anti-China um, uh, narrative is because since 2000, I think, six. Uh, it accelerated where they've been hacking into uh, U.S. companies and stealing the data and all of a sudden coming out with a, a jet and a missile exactly similar to what America has. Mm. So you've seen this sort of battle pick up and the lines being drawn, and it's been not good for China. Uh, I'll tell you how bad it is because I remember doing the debate at your conference is, is that we shut down our China fund. Uh, there's just no interest in America, and it comes from the wisdom of crowds that that even if you have the top performing China fund, no one cares. No one wants to take that risk. Mm-hmm. They'd rather take the risk in something in North America than be there. And the same thing with Eastern European fund. I launched that when the EU was being created with four million dollars. It went to one point four billion. And uh, and I was very fortunate. I got out of all the Russian stocks in my Eastern European fund. It didn't matter. People just were redeeming. They just don't want to take that risk. Last year, Poland was up 50%. Doesn't matter. They do not want to take that risk. So you're seeing a sort of a protectionism of capital. You're seeing money going in to buy physical gold. So there's some really interesting sort of shifts and dynamics where money's flowing into. So I shut down these other funds. I still write about them because I think they're so important for, especially China, for commodity demand. But I, I I think that this year for, for investors, I remain pretty optimistic and bullish about overall um, the industry. 
I think that microcaps, in particular, junior mining, is still going to struggle. Um, I think when I heard Pierre Lassonde speak at the Denver Gold Show this year, uh, and he said that if you're a junior and you have a big discovery, your stock will pop up and everyone sells and you need to have a, a, a family office like he has mm-hmm. or, or a fund that's going to be supporting your drill program because the life cycle of a mine, which when I first started in the business before you were born, 1978, uh, the life cycle was like nine years. It's now 30 years. Uh, you, all all the negotiations, all the drama that has to take place in Canada, the only place where you can see brilliant minds like Robert Freeland, he goes to Africa. Why is that? Because it's uh, nine years. It's not it's not a 30-year cycle. Um, and, and in Nevada this year, I think he said there was only one project approved. So in Nevada is the big gold mining district. And, and so you're seeing that the regulatory regime is making the supply very difficult for drilling, development, or expanding production or, or permitting a production. And, and so these dynamics do impact because if you're a junior and you are in, in the Yukon, uh, someone now is going to say, well, yeah, I have a discovery, but I better, how fast do I get out? Because it's going to be 30 years before that comes into production. That's mm-hmm. the fear. So that does impact um, capital and, and money. So I think your projects are going to be looking at countries. They may have other geopolitical risks. Uh, like uh, 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 radicalism in in Mali or something like that in the northern part, but the fact is that you can bring on production uh, cr- creates a different dynamic, and I think that that's how the capital markets have shifted. Um, and when we take a look at uh, the the junior mining, is it's very different than crypto. Uh, the crypto ecosystem is is young people like yourself. Uh, and they function outside of the metaverse of the capital markets. It's more mm-hmm. difficult to onboard a trade in a new ICO, uh, a new idea, but it's pretty decentralized. And I'll give you a, a simple data point. There's 200 and some odd countries. There's really 100 functional central banks, but there are more than 10,000 highly functional nodes validating Bitcoin transactions 24-7. So it's decentralized. It's all over the world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and, and banking system, banking lobbyists are coming after the industry, but it seems to all of a sudden get legs and come back again, uh, as, a, as a digital asset. And, and I think that, that if you take a look at on Reddit or if you look on Twitter, um, the memes, the, how they communicate, how your age, uh, they joke and laugh and make, if they have a, a a statement against some speaking person or an influencer or something, a politician, it's very witty and funny. Some is rude and crude, but it's amazing to see you don't have that robustness of young people talking about junior gold stocks and and creating memes around it. You don't no. have that 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 ecosystem when you look at Reddit. Uh, who has good karma compared to crypto to junior mining? or gold uh and so you need to have you need to have that speculation um because one of the things you find in the crypto space and the mining crypto mining in particular is that minnows ignite price discovery minnows then attract bigger fish Mm -hmm. along come 
the tunas and barracudas, and then come the whales, and then come the orcas and the and the killer whales. Uh, you have then this bit ecosystem, and if you don't have price discovery, then you're not going to be able to attract that institutional money into that space, and and that's what I see is is it happens in this sort of eco world, this uh, crypto world is, is very different than uh, speculation. And the regulatory world in Europe or in Canada, um, it's there's a, an oligopoly. In America, there's 4,000 banks. When I first moved here in 1990, there's 14,000. Now there's only 4,000. Sure. But in Canada, really, there's only five. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So they have an oligopoly. And they have the biggest influence. They control 80% of the wealth. And they all of a sudden become more influencing on the stock exchange and then the regulatory regime. So it becomes a very different, it's not as decentralized. Europe's even more centralized. And you can see this in classic speculation. In America, something like, say, simple statistics, 60% of Americans are investing in the market. Somehow, some way, could be their RSP as you do in Canada, or their IRA, or four hundred one k, or just out speculating. In Canada, it drops to like forty percent. Hmm. You go to England and you're at thirty percent, and you go to France and you're like five percent. Hmm. So people don't think of getting that glory hole, that speculation. They yeah. go to the casino. It's easy to go to the casino. It's easy to go to the racing track. Mm -hmm. But you can't speculate in that junior mining. And so you that just triggers the flow of funds and speculation uh, in, in that space. So I think the junior space is going to have to almost like reinvent itself to attract that there's wonderful speculation. There's great opportunities. Who are the biggest winners last year in the junior mining space? Uh, what did they do? Where was how how did they create wealth for investors, etc.? I think that those things are going to become important to attract um, uh, that sort of element of risk taking and speculation. And so we know this from our gold funds because we're the one of still the biggest players in that junior speculative base, and they've really hurt our gold funds. They, mm -hmm. it, it doesn't matter that we have our great models right now. The the the, the stocks that have performed that are producers down to fifty million dollar market cap. The biggest single factor is revenue last quarter over the last year. So if you just take the best ten names of revenue. Mm -hmm. Uh, they're positive of, of last quarter over the last year. Uh, they they torque. Was it sure. because is it that because the gold analysts are calling up to say, hey, you want to buy this gold stock because its revenue is torquing? You never hear them say that. Then who's the buyers, Jay? Who's the buyers? It's quant funds. It's quant funds which are agnostic to gold, mm -hmm. and, and they look at factors like free cash flow yield. Or they look at, which I found for junior mining, did you increase the reserves per share at the last quarter over four quarters or the last year over three years on a per share basis? Those companies outperform in a rising tide far, far greater than anything else. So a lot of companies have issued so many shares <clears throat> that they've, they've not found enough gold for the amount of shares they've issued. So therefore, there's less value per share. Mm-hmm. And, and now we have Newmont goes through Newcrest big merger. Well, this stock gets, gets crushed because the value metrics say that merger is great long term. They'll have big cost savings, but the revenue per share and cash flow per share 
is actually less, is diluted. And it'll take maybe 18 months or gold has to go through the roof before it shows up on a per share basis. So that stock falls down to a yield that's higher than a five-year government bond. Uh, and, and, and so why is that? It's quants. It's quants that come in and there's different types of quants that are out there that are trading ETFs versus a stock name, but they're always looking for either deep value for mean reversion or momentum. And they look for momentum in the in the airlines industry. There's a a, a a metric that shows you the revenue per seat. So you look at what airline has the most seats. It's American Airlines has the most seats. So now you're going to look at what's its revenue growth last quarter over four quarters versus Southwest Airlines per seat. Not the price of the ticket. It's the change in the revenue. So there's this, this big audience of looking for revenue and momentum. And if they don't do that, they're looking for those stocks that have the highest free cash flow. Mm -hmm. And I, I look at Apple, you know, Apple is, is one of the magnificent seven, but they didn't have a huge torquing. Uh, big reason for it, strong dollar, their exports, it impacts the currency. But if you look at their free cash flow, it's extremely rich. So Quants will go to where you're seeing these ch cheap EBITDA multiples or very high cash flow yields or where there's momentum of last top line over last quarter over four quarters. Uh, and, and, and you're not seeing this to the degree in the gold space we had until June of last year in the 100 stocks I follow, it's down to about 85 now with mergers, et cetera. 60% had a free cash flow yield. At the end of September, it fell to 30% because mm. of inflation, and they didn't increase their production. So the only way they're going to torque the revenue is that they increase their production or the price of gold goes up. Yeah. Those are two factors. Now, they have operation expenses. If there's big inflation, then that's going to all of a sudden chew into that margin, which is chewing into their free cash flow. Yeah. So now we're in a dynamic that that will gold rise this year? And what is the mathematical probability of gold rising? I did some regressional studies and, and, and I looked at gold on a historical basis, how fast interest rates rose uh, over 18 months, that gold should have been like 1300. I try to tell people that gold was actually so resilient. Gold stayed very strong last year. And why is that? All the central bank buying. Yeah. And, and, and so you saw a new floor being created by central bank buying uh, that's very significant. Now the dollar starts getting weaker, you're going to start seeing the gold price all of a sudden get a reset button. Um, the other additional supply was really recycling of gold, mm -hmm. not a huge increase in um, this new production coming on. It was predominantly more efficient recycling. So I think the supply and demand dynamics are very bullish for copper, very bullish for gold, and, and they're very bullish for uranium. Uh, and we've seen uranium prices go off on a tear. Uh, in particular, why? Because Kazakhstan all of a sudden limits supply. Yep, yep. And, and now there's new technology going into modular um, um, reactors uh, which are much safer, but they're modular and smaller and they big cap expand. So you have a new dynamic taking place. So you have to look at these macro supply and demand factors. Okay. So man, a, a ton that I want to unpack there. 
<laughs> but uh, I'm going to go uh, section by section because I want to go back quite far, but I'm going to start more where we finished up there. So interesting thoughts on the on the junior mining sector. Let's let's start there because that's paired with a fairly bullish outlook on commodities, specifically, you know, copper, uranium and gold. Um, the argument for gold, quite clear. You mentioned central bank gold buying over the last 18 months. We've been setting 40-year records. Retail demand also strong. You mentioned $100 million in gold sold by Costco. I mean, that's direct to retail gold purchasers. I can't remember the stats, but similar activity occurring in China. Young investors who used to look towards the property market are just buying small denominations of physical gold. And so, you know, the, the demand is there. The demand is climbing. Um, as you mentioned, a lot of these producers are not producing more, right? Supply is sort of flat. That should drive price up. You know, similar story in, in copper. And and part of my, I wonder if part of your bullish sentiment on commodities is as you talked about the US military industrial complex. I want to talk about this too, but because there's a lot of narrative and headlines that I see discussing the fact that the United States cannot supply the existing wars, the, the two main wars they're um, involved with right now, obviously, Ukraine, Russia, uh, I believe, you know, we're, we're firing more shells in a day than the United States allegedly can produce in a month. Um, as I understand, they've already drained the strategic Middle East weapons reserve that was held in Israel to fund the European war that was before uh, October 10th, October 7th. Um, and so now there's a deficit there occurring as well. But what you're saying is like, no, people underestimate and don't understand the ability for the United States to restart the war engine in country and every state will participate in the military industrial complex. Well, that's got to put huge demand on all sorts of commodities. Um, when, so here's my question after all that, when, when do you expect, because your outlook on junior mining is very bearish and I'm curious, and I agree with you that the, there's no entertaining culture in junior mining like there is in crypto. There's far more barriers to entry for investors. There's you know KYC requirements and getting access to private placements isn't available to everybody. Uh, in addition to just the extension of um, getting some into production, moving from nine years to 30 years, like that's not exciting. Right, we want returns today. Everybody wants to get rich tomorrow, right? So I, I get the barriers, but at what point does the underlying commodity price just drive greed towards the explorers who can offer that torque to the price of the commodity? What are your thoughts there? I, the biggest would be China's policies uh, change, uh, their warlike policies, and uh, the meddling that they're doing. If they change. The, the leadership now, and, and in all our prospectuses, and when I've spoken at your conferences, I always say that that we follow government policies as a precursor to change. And it's a binary model. It's monetary fiscal. Monetary is binary. Real interest rates, money supply. Fiscal is tax and spend. And regulations get in, around the, the taxation because regulation is a form of taxation. So you can just see what China is doing and, and how they've come out of the draconian model that they had for COVID. Um, and their, their fearfulness is, is just not healthy for global demand and trade. That's this very evident. Um, and, and so I think that they're really key to that element if they change their policies much more like Deng Xiaoping was, uh, to get rich is glorious. 
and, and and the other part would be that I think is because 60% of demand for gold is love. It's the great mm. love trade. And it's the rise in GDP per capita in China, Southeast Asia, Middle East, India. As long as that's rising GDP per capita, they buy gold. Last year was was uh, uh, the rabbit, and this year is the dragon. Uh, and if you were born in that uh, year, then you're going to get a beautiful dragon. And I and I think that we have to re respect that that that's a floor. But the new floors become central banks. And so, therefore, what would be the driver would be the falling interest rates in the U.S. and gold going through 2300. Okay. When it goes through 2300, then all of a sudden people will start looking at their models and saying that these gold stocks are going to make 20% growth in revenue quarter this quarter over last year's quarter. They're going to all of a sudden start throwing off a free cash flow yield. You will start seeing non-gold fund people all of a sudden who are agnostic they're only their only religion is growth and revenue and cash flow that's mm -hmm. where they go and and so they they will all of a sudden come into that sector um and and we'll start seeing the bubbling but i don't think we're going to see like we had 2001 to 2005 that's going to take gold through gold is going to probably be through three thousand dollars before you're going to get of this big interest in that space. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think one of the positive parts is, is that supply is just more and more difficult to discover and develop and produce. So mm -hmm. it's more difficult. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thank you for that. Now I want to, uh, I want to, want to follow the conflict thread. So you touched on Ukraine and, and the Middle East briefly. Uh, you run the, the cargo ETF, the sea to sky ETF, um, which, forces you, you know, obviously to pay a lot more attention than most folks to um, international trade obstructions. And we're obviously seeing quite a large one right now. Um, in the Red Sea, there's been some hostile attacks on uh, Maersk ships. They've now paused shipping through the Red Sea. So what's occurring there, Frank? How significant is this? Uh, and what's catching your attention? They have tremendous pricing power like the airlines have right now. Uh, it, 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 there has been so many climate change policies over the past 12 years. Uh, what type of ships can come into your port, North America and Europe? Uh, uh, what ships can go through a Panama Canal? Uh, uh, and then new ones for uh, the type of fuel you're using. So any ship that's using crude, high sulfur content from Venezuela uh, is it cannot come into our port. Um, and so, therefore, you have these sort of supply side number of ships that are eligible to travel around. Then you get geopolitics. Okay, we're going to lob in a few bombs. We're going to blow up a few uh, boats. And so, all of a sudden, the biggest shipping company of the world and, De and, and out of De uh, Denmark says, we're not going to be going anything through the Red Sea. Well, that's that's basically a chokehold for uh, over 30% of the world's supply. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so these these cargo ships have tremendous pricing power. That that's that's what you're seeing. So there's not enough ships for for a turn up in global demand. Uh, you get the PMIs of the world all turning up what, the, of over fifty. These shipping uh, ships will make so much money. The cost of that is is very very uh, high. Um, airlines, same thing. There's a shortage of pilots. 
that before when you had these incredible prices you could charge, immediately people started having you know, more flights from Vancouver to Palm Springs and more flights to Acapulco, more flights, more flights. There's no pilots. Mm-hmm. There's a shortage of pilots. Uh, and, and so then you start running into some of the climate change policies like you saw in Amsterdam that they said, well, we just want to sh- limit the number of flights allowed to take off and land in this airport. We're going to just cut it back. And, and so therefore those airlines say, if you want to fly into Amsterdam, you have to pay more now. You want that access. There's, they have this pricing power. So I think that the, the, the global transport lines, it doesn't matter if it's, it's commercial or it's, uh, tourism, um, the, these channels of moving human beings or cargo uh, are in a in a secular bull market. That's interesting. So the way I understood that is that this, although puts the brakes on Maersk operations from shipping through the Red Sea and, and therefore the Suez Canal, uh, but they're not the ones who get hit here because they can adjust their pricing. The demand isn't going anywhere and they'll charge whatever they want to or have to to go the long routes, right? Around the Horn of Africa, essentially, is what they have to do now to get to Europe from, from Asia, correct? Uh, and yes. so pays and for this. And same with the cargo airlines. I really saw this with Hive when we were upgrading all of our, our, our technology in Sweden and Iceland and uh, getting stuff uh, in China, going from four RAM to eight RAM for our GPU chips. Mm. Uh, the, the airlines had such pricing power and they passed on all the insurance costs to you. They passed on all fuel charges to you. They pass, like you just saw this bill go up. So not only are they charging you for their service, all they basically all their outsourcing costs were passed on to you. And and I think that that we're going to see this in a grander scale. That inflation is not going to fall back to one percent and two percent. Mm. Uh, I, I don't see that uh, because of of these difficulties that you cannot bring in uh, more pilots, you cannot bring in more ships to drive down the price of movement of commodities or people. Okay, interesting. And so so where would you expect a response to come from? If you're watching this conflict in the Red Sea, you know, Maersk can say, whatever, we'll go the long way, you're just going to pay more, it's not our problem. Um, You know, who's going to step in to who would you expect to step in to try to address the Houthi rebel situation? And does this increase global participation in the Middle East conflict in general? Or does this increase and escalate the conflict a little bit? And how much, I suppose, is a better question? Well, clearly the U.S. has shot down three uh, ships that uh, the radicals are using out of Yemen that are funded by Iran. Iran right. continues to be a big problem. And I think they're a real big risk for the U.S. in, in South America. Uh, they're strongly in, in, embedded into Venezuela. Right. Uh, Hamas is in, in now Colombia. Uh, it, it's it's um, uh, it, it's really a, 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 a political risk uh, that that I see, and that could impact those supply lines. But I also believe that places like Iran, uh, they and 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 uh, Putin in Russia. They go and stoke these fires. They want to create disruption. They want to fund it because they get the price oh, yeah. of oil. What do they export? They export this. And, and and so they want to have as much turmoil as possible. Uh, I think you're going to have to have uh, captains of the sea. That'd be the U.S. and what they've done. Um, we see now the British 
have come into Guyana because Venezuela wants to invade Guyana to get their oil fields. Yeah. Uh, and and so you you see that it's it's who's funding Venezuela? Who's funding uh, the drama that's taking place in Europe? Like, where did no, 200,000 North Africans arrive in Italy's shore? Who brought them across on boats? These were people trying to escape Cuba on a styrofoam raft. These were people that had life jackets on, $100,000 motorboats uh, cruising across the Mediterranean, dropping them off. Uh, who's funding that? Uh, who's trying to create that disruption? Uh, along comes the the new leader of Italy, and she says she's going to back out of China's Silk Road policies because the trade agreements are not good for for uh, Italy. They're not one to one; they're five to one against them. And she's against Putin. And all of a sudden, she's being invaded by North Africans. Uh, we're seeing across the border here in Texas. I think they said close to four hundred thousand illegals. Uh, I see at the Home Depot here uh, uh, in the morning, uh, tall, young Africans looking for work. Uh, the problem for them is they speak French. They don't speak Spanish or English. Mm. And, and, uh, and, and so how did they get here? They didn't swim across the Atlantic. Someone flew them. Well, who would have paid for that? Who is trying to create that disruption? Anything to help, in particular, I think, Putin uh, to have oil prices high and, and his best partner for that are countries like uh, Iran. Yeah, okay. This, this... Give you a mouthful. So now you're dealing with geopolitics in the megatrend. Uh, and so that's going to create a disruption and consumers will pay here. We're going to have to live with a higher inflationary rate uh, in Europe and North America. Well, yeah. Okay. That makes, that makes sense to me. And, and, you know, I, I appreciate your take on this because I, I find that you approach these problems like a capitalist, you kind of detach your emotional bias to any outcome and say, here's what's occurring. Right. And, and often, you know, follow the money who's paying right for this activity to occur. And, <clears throat> you know, there's a lot of, uh, I hear a lot of talk on my channel right now from more doom and gloom leaning personalities who will point to things like the porous uh, southern border in the United States and and what this really means and what the game is, really is behind the scenes. Um, you mentioned uh, Hamas uh, presence in, in Venezuela and Colombia. You know, I had Eric Prince, the founder of Blackwater, on my on my show uh, a while back, and he said, "Yeah, look, there's like probably ten thousand yeah, you know, Hamas or Hamas related uh, individuals in Dearborn, Texas. Ah, that sounds crazy to me a bit. Like, what, what do I know? You know, Eric Prince might have a better idea than I do. Uh, he also pointed to the fact that the largest non-US funder of all American universities is Qatar and ties direct links, you know, between where the money's coming from that's influencing the education and the culture on campus to the pro-Palestine uh, and anti-Israel protests and all this stuff. You, you can point a pretty dire cultural picture here, right? In, in an in an environment that's already become super divisive and conflict riddled. Do you? Well, that's, what the, that's what these interviews are good for. And so, as a money manager, you have to think contrary, and you have to ask well, who's behind that. And one of the things was how could they have so many? Uh, the Palestinian marches are so organized. This is well organized. And well-funded. Uh, someone mentioned there's a joke the other day. There's more Palestinian flags uh, at these protests than there are Palestinians. Yeah, uh, right. It, like, who's buying the flags? Yeah. Who's 
guys in the beautiful signs. Um, mm-hmm. and they show up in downtown Sweden in Stockholm. We have a data center there. So I'm well aware that they have tens of thousands of people coming. It's, it's so well organized. And, and that creates a fear element for a lot of people. Um, and, and you just have to be able to discuss it, expose it. It's not going to happen on mainstream uh, uh, television. Uh, and I think what's really important for what we're doing right now is that we're decentralized. And, and people that are uh, have to go and find different types of decentralized media and arbitrage the information. Uh, it, it, don't take what I'm saying for, for verbatim, but say, okay, well, is there something there? Um, I, I do know I wrote about this in nineteen in 2020 that uh, there's a there's a place in Norway uh, that trains people how to do Antifa, how to do a protest, and how to create trouble. Uh, and and if you looked at uh, AI, looked at game film of these protests in Hong Kong, in Bogota, that took place in Toronto, uh, Seattle, they're all the same formation. They'll have masks on, but they all have, they're all trained like, like U.S. military. Well, where's that money come from? Who's paying them? You just have to ask those questions. And I think that overall, we still survive and thrive. I think these pendulums go from swinging from far left to right. And as a money manager, it's just being, I think, aware of, okay, that's going to happen. Um, and, and I think that we're going to have an election year. I'm going to, I'm writing a piece on this is that conspiracy theories are going to really grow this year. In, in the fourth year of election cycle, they're everywhere. Both parties, yeah. doesn't matter if it's Democrats, Republicans, they both have them. Yeah. So what portion actually come to be truthful? 10%, 5%, 20%? But 80% for sure are just conspiracy that trying to create fear that you should vote for me and swing over the other side. And as a money manager, you have to try to stay agnostic from all of that. And you have to say, okay, how do I come down the middle that do I buy cybersecurity stocks because I'm going to need cybersecurity as defense and those stocks are going to have growing revenue? Or then do I go buy gold because they're going to be printing money? It, it's, it's, it's sort of dynamic thinking this way. Mm. You know, just as an aside, Frank, I, I love one comment you made there where you you said, you know, despite this, overall, we're going to survive and thrive because we always do, right? Which yeah. which caught my attention because, uh, funny, but, you know, a couple of days ago, I was in my kitchen and I was, I'm writing my keynote speech for my conference coming up in a couple of weeks. And my wife was asking me what I'm going to talk about and what I want to accomplish with this. And I was kind of puzzled. I was a bit stuck in that moment, actually. And uh, when she asked me, what do you want to accomplish? I said, ah, I know what I want to accomplish. And I said, look, Frank Holmes used to come to my shows and deliver the best keynote at the conference because he would lay out all these problems and conflicts in the world and take the audience on a journey, right? Into the the depths of how bad things can get and some of the challenges we're facing. But you'd always lift the audience up to the end and say, but here's, you know, here's the opportunity, right? And here's how to how to come out on top and all this stuff. And and I could see the audience follow you along as you kind of go from like, you know, a Thank good you. hook to a bit of a dire situation, but here's the opportunity and this this arcing narrative. And I was like, that's what I want to do. That's what that's what I'm gonna try to do. <laughs> well, you know what? People don't realize <clears throat> that there's so many incredible deep pockets of wealth in America. And, and it's the culture is so different than say Canada. Um, Canadians love hockey. Everything here is hockey. Yeah. 
everything. If your kids take Kumon, they rank them all over the world. You want to know how you're ranked in, in, in BC? Well, they'll give you a ranking. You want a statistical ranking? It's so competitive. Uh, academics is competitive. Music is competitive. One of our uh, key employees here, uh, he didn't have money for college, but he was good in, in music. So he joined the band and the bands compete. So the football mm -hmm. team's competing. The bands are competing. So he gets a full ride. Uh, the cheerleaders, they weren't going to make the Olympic gymnastic team. So they're now cheerleaders doing triple flips and things like that. They have a full ride because the cheerleaders compete. Mm. So it's recognizing all this, this element of America for its size is only 4% of the world's population, but it has some tremendous, these deep pockets of intellectual wealth, financial, I, you meet all these people. What do you do? I, I, I make sweaters. Uh, you know, I do 50 million and, and I have 20% gross margins. I make 10 million a year. Really? Mm -hmm. Where do you make them? I make them in, in just outside of San Antonio. Like you, wherever you go, I thought that was just oil and gas. No, I make them for the oil and gas people. Right, right, right. <laughs> you, you, you just, <clears throat> and so America is very competitive. States versus states. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, cities versus states. In, in America, you have tax-free bonds. Why? I asked, moving from Canada 35 years ago, uh, it, it, it's to compete. Well, uh, the school system here in San Antonio, they're going to do a tax-free bond to build a new gym stadium and, and science classes so they're, they can compete with the school across the city. Mm -hmm. They all compete, and, and they raise tax-free bonds to have better infrastructure downtown, better this. Why? Because we want tourism to come to San Antonio to see the Riverwalk, so they float a tax-free bond. It, it, and you just don't realize it's it's not it's very decentralized, and that's why I think gold resonates well actually of so many American investors. So the ratio is ten to one Americans to Canadians, so ten Americans yeah. for every Canadian. Yeah. The GDP number is about the same, but speculation and in and private property rights it's much greater in America. You see it in investing, you see the concept, and, and you see this dynamic that we have to innovate to compete. Uh, and so we have all this drama, which I talk about, but it seems for somehow, look at the Ivy League schools with pushing wokeism, all of a sudden you're getting this backlash. What do people do in America? We're not, take my name off the school. I'm not giving any more money. Mm -hmm. Enrollment in, in Harvard's down 17%. Yeah. Right. Mind the big, so America votes with their money. Yeah. yeah. And, and so it's, it's Canadians don't do that. That's not polite. I, I, it, it's a very different in Europe. They don't even, it doesn't even exist. Uh, and so it's recognizing there's a high correlation of this sort of decentralized states competing with each other, cities competing with each other, schools competing with each other. Uh, this concept doesn't happen in, in other countries like it does in America. No, it, it does not. And, and you mentioned the contrast between between Canadian culture, right? And uh, and you're right, because largely there's, there's nobody here. I mean, <laughs> you know, if you want to be in the fray, you can go to three or four cities in Canada versus, you know, 50 plus in America. Otherwise, you know, I live in a town of 20,000 people. It's great. Canada is a great place to move to if you don't want anybody to bother you. Um, you know, I know, I know the media coverage outside of the country is a bit different. They cover the, you know, the Trudeau cultural divisions that you'll see in the cities, but it, you can easily avoid that. Uh, having said that, you know, I, 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 I like the picture you paint because 
And, and again, I had General Wesley Clark on my show a, about a month and a half ago, and we were talking about yeah. all the conflict in country. And and I said, you know, people look at this and they say, this is getting out of control. If this continues to escalate, this is the demise of the United States. We can't agree on anything anymore. This conflict is just a one-way uh, uh, train wreck, essentially. And his his pushback was was that non-Americans don't understand that that's how America solves problems. This is traditional American rage. Democracy is an argument, and we're allowed to have that argument because it's a free country. So we can hit the streets, right, and make our voices heard. You can't do that everywhere. So you see these protests and riots, and ev- like it can get quite vicious, right? As as we've seen many times through different cycles of American history. But his point was, it's like that's how America solves problems. Yeah, we fight sometimes, but that's how we solve problems, right? I thought it was yeah. a pretty brilliant explanation. It's a very, and he's a Rhodes Scholar. You know, besides being head of NATO, it's a very smart man, uh, and and he's such a he's a he's just gentleman. I like him. A yeah. Lot. Yeah, hundred percent. Okay, so look, I know I, I've kept you uh, probably as long as I promised I would, but if you still have some time, you know we haven't touched a lot on uh, on the crypto market. I just want to get some high level thoughts from you. I know you recently put out a piece called Five Trends to Watch in 2024 in the digital asset space. I have to put uh, on my Hive hat <laughs> as the executive chairman of Hive Digital. I, I gotta ask. Uh, you know, what do you expect here? A lot of, um, you know, prices are rallying in the crypto market. My audience doesn't spend a lot of time there. They're more hard, ass- hard asset folks, but, uh, you know, I invest in crypto and, and and Bitcoin and some of them do too. So what are you watching right now, Frank? What do you expect in 2024? I'll give you something that's uh, interesting uh, is that we've stayed unlisted on Vancouver. We've not left there to go to Toronto. Yeah. So we, we are a significant uh, entity uh, on that exchange. Um and from volume and from <clears throat> revenue, what we do. Um, and and so I, I do love the venture capital mindset of that exchange. Uh, it, it, it doesn't get caught up as much bureaucracy and paperwork as you would uh, on Toronto. Um, and, and so with that, uh, we've always enjoyed and we will continue to be there. Uh, we're on NASDAQ, we're listening to Germany, uh, we're very liquid. Um, but I, I, I think that the crypto business, uh, there's a new movie called Bitcoin and it shouldn't be called con artists of Bitcoin because it really, it is the ICOs that were taking place in 2017 where they make house tree promoters look like, uh, they're boy scouts. Right. Uh, right, right, right. It's, it's, it's a great, it's a great documentary, uh, on a true story of, of, uh, of that industry. But I believe that digital uh, money is is not going away. You need electricity to make a Bitcoin. You need electricity to make a bar of gold. You need electricity if you want to have a gold ring. You need you need energy uh, for that workmanship. And so you need so the value really is energy. It's the interesting part about it. It's all related to the cost and operating is this energy component. Um, I, I believe that uh, Bitcoin uh, will go through a change like the gold market did when the GLD came out in 2004. Um, uh, and what happened there is that it was all of a sudden the separation of gold stocks. The big gold stocks traded incredible premiums to price to cash flow, price to earnings. Uh, the, the generalist analysts used to always talk about uh, they were too expensive to own. Um 
And along came the GLD. And what did that do? All of a sudden, basically, gold stocks, unless they had growth in revenue, growth in reserves, and growth in cash flow, they were sold down. And you saw a bifurcation that bullion was has been outperforming the majority of gold stocks against the GDX and GDXJ. Now, when gold runs, the gold stocks will outperform slightly. But over the this decade, bullion has outperformed the S&P 2 to 1. Mm-hmm. Still outperformed, but not gold stocks. Mm-hmm. Gold stocks lost all that flavor by 2008, and <clears throat> money went into the GLD. So I think when the Bitcoin ETF comes out, that there'll be a separation of value with the gold with the Bitcoin miners. Right now, it reminds me of the gold stocks in 2003 and four. that it didn't matter how dilutive you were, just grab gold production, get gold reserves, sell shares, merge. It didn't matter. They, they, they were increasing their share count faster than they were increasing their reserves of production. And that led to this sort of bear cycle in the value of gold stocks. And coming out of that, the best performing were royalty companies. They had the best preservation of, of revenue per share. And I think I was the first analyst to say, I love the gold royalty model. And people poo-hooed that at the conference. Other newsletter writers, they now they've got all their own little junior uh, royalty companies. Yeah. And and so you, you see this sort of the Bitcoin miners is just a land grab. So some of these other companies have grown faster than Hive in the past year. They diluted themselves by 300%. 150%, 200%. They just keep selling shares uh, to just as a land grab. Um, we've been much more respected, the least amount of dilution, the highest cash flow return on invested capital, the highest revenue per employee. Uh, and we've run it that way uh, as a business. And, and we've had a weather losing Ethereum. Ethereum was very high margin business for us. Mm-hmm. compared to Bitcoin mining. Bitcoin mining's margins go like this, and then they go like this. They go like mm-hmm. this, they go like this. Ethereum was like this, always like positive. What's happened with those chips that we bought from NVIDIA is now building out our high-performance computing because of this AI boom. And that's very significant. Uh, we did our beta test. We converted some of our NVIDIA chips over to high-performance computing and, and, and let people rent our machines from us. And that threw off a quarter million dollars in the first quarter last year. Our performance say that we should be this time next year up to a quarter million a day. Uh, we're now a quarter million a month. And mm-hmm. we've been public on that. And what we have to do is get these super micro servers that you can put 10 NVIDIA chips into. And then you have to buy special umbilical cords uh, and, and corpus callosum cords, I call them, uh, to, to build the the infrastructure and immediately they start throwing off huge revenue when you look at bitcoin mining today on an asic high performing chip you do 15 cents an hour per chip that's roughly today what you're going to be producing in revenue for hpc it's a dollar 50. it's 10 times so it's a much better margin business Um. So that's what Hive has been busy building out and learning so much steep in learning. Um, and, but we're really thrilled that we've been able to execute and we see some people make an announcement. They're buying these 100 machines for, they have no idea how complex it is. It's another level. But if you recall that I took Goldspot public and that's really, I learned a lot about AI and the significance of AI for gold exploration. 
Now Gold Spot's become a media company. They mm-hmm. bought the Northern Miner. They bought Tommy Humphrey's company, uh, and it's really and they sold off the the AI business before AI became a big boom. Yeah. But AI is very significant, and it's going to change our lives uh, to, I believe, a big benefit. Uh, I have my whole team here uh, doing courses um, uh, on AI. Uh, uh, my wife went to took a course at MIT. Uh, over the Christmas holidays, my eight-year-old, she took a three-day course on AI. Uh, And and it's just recognizing that robotics and AI are going to be very significant in in, in the world. And the magic is how do you use them? So I think that Hive has this unique opportunity as a digital company um, of where it's going to go through that re-rating when the Bitcoin ETF comes out. Right now, uh, we're we're holding our coins um, and uh, we're expanding our Bitcoin production uh, and we're about one percent of the global network. Okay, you know, I, I just as a just as a, a wrap up, I, I love your focus on AI education because so much of the conversation around AI is fear based. This is going to disrupt this industry, displace those jobs, destroy this work, all this stuff. And I always say like, look, we've adopted every new technology that's ever become available to us. We're going to adopt this one too, completely and comprehensively. Like we have every previous technology, but the way you, you know, you're only disrupted by things you don't see coming. So if you want to protect yourself from AI, then start using it every day, right? And stay at the front end of that curve and amplify your performance instead of having come up from behind you and smacking the face where you're not paying attention because you were scared of it and just turned your back on it, right? It's not not the approach with new tech is to turn your back on it. Never the right approach. So our, our CEO is in Vancouver, as you know, Iden Killick. And uh, yeah, we've great guy, great guy. Several times now to Silicon Valley. And, and you won't believe how vibrant it is. 90% of VC flows are going into AI. There's something big is happening uh, outside yeah. of the normal that normal world, and it can impact in robotics mining, uh, mining for difficult areas. Uh, it's going to really improve the efficiency of our exploration. The effectiveness of exploration, no doubt, improves it by using AI. The efficiency that can take place with robotics is another level. So I, I really stay re- re- very positive. But it's booming in Silicon Valley. There's seven fights a day, I think, between Vancouver and, and San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Seven a day. Uh, and, and, and that just gives you an idea of what's taking place for the, that activity uh, in technology. Mm-hmm. I love that. Okay. Look, Frank, I want to thank you for coming back on the show. It's been great catching up with you and, uh, and uh, yeah, migrating this whole conversation. We covered a ton of ground today. So I know my audience is going to love it, but uh, I appreciate you. So thank you very much. And the best of health and wealth for this year. And your beautiful boys. Appreciate that, Frank. Right back at you, man. All right. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor. Follow or subscribe to this podcast. Drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.